Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today... We are joined by my good friend, Mr. Christian Lawrence, head of cross-asset strategy at Rabobank right here in New York City. A privilege to have you here, Christian, as always. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Great to be here, Damien. Super. Well, listen, I mean, this has been uh, nothing short of a spectacular one-month move in markets. We saw double tops in both the dollar and U.S. 10-year yields. And this is kind of fueling a, a pretty vicious rally here in risk assets, right? Now, my question is this, is this move structurally bullish for emerging market investors? Is this what, you know, the, the EM community's long been waiting for? Or is this just something that, you know, has gone a little bit too far too fast on light positioning, illiquid kind of seasonal year-end conditions? And perhaps more importantly, what does this mean in terms of US dollar weakness going forward? Yeah, well, you raised some good points there. And I think the answer uh, is both uh, in the sense that clearly that the move was fundamentally triggered, uh, but I do think that the pace and the um, amplitude of the mood move was certainly exacerbated by very heavy positioning unwinds. So if you think back to the beginning of the year, you know, tighter financial conditions, obviously the uh, the consensus trade there in long dollar, short treasuries, we, we saw some huge positions being put on across macro funds and Essentially, uh, locking in profits of a, a stellar year, I think, was a, was a key theme. And, and those that didn't were then forced to as the, the move sort of gathered a little bit of pace there. Now, we did see some key trigger levels, uh, in particularly uh, in treasuries for, for trend-following accounts, which again exacerbated the move. And of course, this is all against the backdrop of lighter liquidity. I mean, liquidity has been thinner all year, but certainly heading into year end, that seasonal impact has been large. So I do think perhaps the market's got a little bit of ahead of itself here, and it, and it is more about the unwinding of those legacy financial, uh, tighter financial condition trades. But certainly there, there is a, an underlying fundamental rationale here that inflation has peaked and we are fairly confident we know where the Fed is going to end up in terms of the terminal rate. But of course, the market is now pricing in easing later next year, which without a doubt would be very bullish for EM assets if that happens. And you can probably tell by my tone that I'm a little skeptical uh, <laughs> about the market pricing in rate cuts next year. Uh, and we're going to have to get into that. But I, I just want to stay with, you know, what you just mentioned here about, you know, I mean, my goodness, right? Some of these global macro funds have had some really, really, really stellar years, right? I mean, the best in a long, long time. And so, you know, the fact that you see a lot of them taking profits into your end, you know, obviously into, um, you know, seasonal illiquidity. I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, I know. I mean, that's a very good point indeed. And And so for me, I guess it's now one area that, the macro funds have not made a lot of money in. I mean, they made it in rates mostly. They made it in FX. They didn't make it in China. And so my question for you is, you know, we've seen this recent pivot out of Beijing on COVID zero. You know, we've seen, you know, some of these property, property sector curbs being kind of removed, yet demand from households for, you know, medium and long-term, uh, you know, loans, which is kind of a precursor for mortgages, 12 straight months of decline, you know? I mean, what's it going to take to get demand back online in China? Because as we know, Consumption is 50% of GDP there, right? And, you know, I think that's the real question. If you need to get to 5% GDP, which a lot of the market seems to go, well, I don't know if the market's calling for it, but certainly Beijing's looking for it. 
you know, what, what will it take to get there and, and can, can China deliver? I mean, this is one of the difficulties that happens when you're essentially an economy that is, is based on exports and, and residential investment, and then you, you start <laughs> transitioning to consumption. But then, of course, you're, you're transitioning to consumers that have built up a lot of debt and are inherently vulnerable in this environment. So, you know, I'll be honest, I, I thought uh, that China wasn't going to reopen imminently. Uh, I have changed my mind very recently, of course, given, given developments and the, the clear signaling we're seeing. But it's going to take a very long time. Uh, I must admit, I, I remain bearish on China. I think it's going to be a very difficult transition period over the next year or so. I mean, if we look at the reopenings in, in Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, they've been far from smooth. And I, I would expect the same in China. So I think it's going to be a very difficult road ahead. You know, from our, our previous discussions, Damien, I, I tend to stay clear of Chinese assets. Uh, I always um, I'm, I'm wary of that that tail risk from uh, CCP intervention. So I tend to stay clear. And I think in, in this current environment, there's good fundamental reason to as well. Well, I mean, a messy is an understatement, I think, right? I mean, it is getting really, really messy, I think, in China. What? I mean, this is a very sloppy reopening, if you want to call it that. And I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be fits and starts, and it's going to it's going to have long run damage on the economy, you know? And, and so, you know, for me, then I guess the question is this, right? If, and I agree with everything you said, I did not think they were going to pivot the way they did or the way as quickly as they are, it seems. And I certainly didn't think, um, you know, Chinese, you know, I, I certainly acknowledge the risk associated with, you know, yuan denominated Chinese assets, be it equity or debt. So then how do you play China? How do you play this theme of reopening? Is it, you know, Thai bot, you know, with tourist arrivals? Is it Singapore or Malaysia? I mean, I mean, are there perhaps better asset classes that'll deliver a higher risk adjusted return over the next six months if you indeed are expecting for or are playing for a China reopening? Yeah, when I said messy, I, I was certainly trying to be uh, polite, polite. With, with, with that <laughs> word. Um, Look, I, I think that, you know, obviously, as you know, I, I tend to have a bit of a focus on the LATAM region. And I, I think there's some interesting relative value plays there. And, and I have to say that uh, next year, I, I do like continuing to play those those relative value plays in the EM world rather than outright positions. But when I looked at the LATAM region, I, I certainly favour uh, Chile as, as one of the beneficiaries of this. You know, if you look at uh, China's uh, demand for copper compared to oil, uh, it's far greater. So one of the trades I actually do like on the back of this is is, is long Chile and, uh, and uh, short uh, Colombian peso on the, on, on the back of the reopening. So obviously that's a, a bit of a distant play from the region, but no, uh, given but that's you. where my main focus is, I, I do like that. I mean, I think that's an amazing, I mean, look, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Now, here's the other thing about Latin America, right? You mentioned Chile, you mentioned Colombia. Let's talk Brazil, let's, I mean, Mexico. You know, we've seen a lot of rate hikes across the region over the better part of the last 12 months alone. And so, you know, if you look at activity data coming out of Brazil, it's coming off, right? And I think same can be said for places like Chile. And so, you know, my question is, are we expecting a recession to take hold in those two markets over the next, let's call it 12 months? And and if they do, can we finally see some of these receivers starting to pay off in the front end of the curve? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the story actually isn't that dissimilar to, to the global story and even the story in the US. And, and by that, I mean, it's one of below trend growth and above trend in inflation, uh, which, of course, is a is a very difficult scenario. Now, you know, the Latin region, of course, has a, has a much more recent and uh, long lasting history with uh, CPI inflation compared to, to, say, the US. But I do think that when we look at uh, the, the global economy, I, I think there is a marked slowdown next year. I think the US falls into a recession in the second half. I'd probably argue that the Eurozone is, is probably in a recession right now. 
Uh, and even when I look at Mexico, where growth this year has surprised me to the upside a little bit, has been relatively resilient. And I actually still think that uh, the Mexico uh, Mexico will be a, a standout in the region. Uh, but I, I do think much, much lower growth. Now, you know, I always get a little bit uh, uh, frustrated at the, the, the technical definition of a recession. Look, the bottom line is if growth is skirting along zero or it's contracting slightly, look, who cares? It's the same story. <laughs> but that is certainly something that I, I think we're going to see right across the region. I'm not sure that there's going to be anyone that manages to stand out from that perspective. Well, I mean, that's so funny. You know, I have this conversation all the time. What does a recession mean to you, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's two consecutive quarters of negative. I'm like, no, 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 not that one. I'm like, what does it mean? You know, <laughs> what does it mean to your bank account? How does it hit you most? That Do people lose jobs? Can they not afford, you know, to pay for food or, or, or gas or whatever? And, you know, it's funny because, you know, for me, and maybe it's my view of it is, Every time the U.S. enters a recession, you are you you see equity, you see beta basically equity and spreads blow out, right? I mean, without question, there is that moment, that defining moment where equities just blow up and or, or spreads blow up, and so you know that gap risk is that something that you know we can expect to see? I think in the year ahead. I mean, and further to that, you know, I mean, what what do you think it would take? for the Fed to actually step in and turn tail, right? Because I think a lot of people, even though the markets are pricing in some rate cuts, you know, in the not too distant future, call it looking at 12 to 18 months, you know, a lot of others are saying, you know, it's going to be a lot longer than that, right? Before the Fed actually turns tail. Now, I'm curious where your thoughts are on that. And, you know, what you think, you know, um, given some of, you know, the recent inflation data we're seeing out of the US, I mean, what are your thoughts? You know, is the Fed, you know, going to blink? I mean, can they manage a soft landing here? Well, I think you know it's it's easier in our jobs to always get uh, obsessed with the numbers on the screen, but sometimes it's good to take a step back and, and think about what does it mean for the individuals in the country, right? And you know, I always sort of joke that uh, it's only a recession if you lose your job, mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, kind of the, the, the way I, I view things on that front. Of course, you know, it had big impact on financial markets and wealth, etc. But it's really when people start losing their jobs that things get uncomfortable, right? And when you look at the US, you know, you made a good point on the sort of technical recession definition. Yes, the US was in a technical recession at the start of this year, but that was because of a buildup in, in imports and uh, and inventories. You know, right. for the US to be in a true recession, it needs to be driven by the consumer. But what I think is interesting this year, and, and it's been getting some attention, but not enough, and that is the breakdown by income group. I, I would argue the bottom 20% of households in the US are already in a recession. Yeah. And the question is, when does that trickle up into the middle um, income area? Because that's when you start to see the aggregate consumption numbers come down. Now, we know that savings um, have already run out on the aggregate level. Savings is a percentage of uh, disposable income now close to the, the 2005, 2006 lows. Uh, we know that those um, build up in excess savings, let's say three and a half trillion as a result of COVID, were very uh, skewed to the high end, around about a third to the top 1%, another third to the next 19%. And the bottom 40% of households really just got a, a tiny slither of that. And when you also look at the consumer credit numbers in the US, where we've seen six of the largest increases in history over the, the last year, to my mind, that points to a situation where households are being squeezed it's considerably at the lower income end. And that's kind of seeing a, a trickle up effect. And now we're starting to hear about layoffs within the tech sector in particular. When I look to next year, I do see a scenario where we do see that, that middle income start to feel the squeeze. We do start to see job losses at those higher paid jobs. And we do see consumption slow on the aggregate level. Now, 
For me, that doesn't mean the Fed pivots. The big question mark is what happens with the labor market. And I'll be the first to admit, it's been very difficult to call that over the last year. I certainly thought we'd see a bigger increase in the participation rate this year than we have. Um, but you know, the, the buildup of retirees that then suddenly left the workforce has had a, a meaningful impact. So when I look to next year, I see a scenario where actually lower paid services, uh, we still see a, a huge labor shortage there and we still see nominal wage growth that isn't consistent with a, a 2% target there. I mean, remember, real wage growth is, is still deeply negative, uh, but it's when that middle income turns. So from the Fed's perspective, look, we know inflation has peaked. It is going to be heading lower. Uh, particularly when you look at base effects from the year over year basis, we'd really need inflation of more than half a percentage point in order to uh, not see that decline. But we'll still be in a situation where inflation is likely double the Fed's target. I, I still think we'll probably be above 4% next year. Uh, we do see the recession, but the question is what happens with labor? Because if we do see the unemployment rate start to turn quite sharply, then the Fed's going to struggle not to pivot. That being said, if, if uh, I'm correct here and unemployment doesn't rise quite as, as sharply as one would normally expect during a, a recession, then the Fed's probably going to sit on its hands. So my base case uh, for 2023 is still that the, the Fed leaves rates on hold through the year. I'll be the first to admit it's very hard to have high conviction at the moment. And there's certainly a scenario that can emerge where we see unemployment rise more sharply and, and the Fed is forced to pivot. Uh, but my base case is that they probably stay on hold. So, you know, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, and I like to think I am, um, <laughs> in, in the U.S., it's really a case of the haves versus the have-nots, right? With weakness sort of yeah. pushing up the wealth pyramid, right? And by weakness, I'm talking you know, jobs, wages, let's call it the in income generating capacity of the economy. Now let's extend this to the broader global market, right? And talk about some of these frontier markets, the Sri Lankas, the Pakistans, the Nigerias of the world, all operating out along the frontier. EM public debt has searched to 66% of GDP, my friend. That's an all-time record, right? I mean, we're talking rising rates, weaker currencies, below trend growth. My question is, can, is it possible to see some of the things we're witnessing out along the frontier moving up the wealth pyramid to, you know, more developed economies? Or is that, you know, a far bond conclusion? Are some of these issues going to be ring fenced? That's my first point of the question. The second is, we're also seeing some, some election risks coming through, right? I mean, we've got elections coming through in Nigeria in Feb, right? We've got Pakistan's another, we've got Turkey, we've got Argentina. I mean, Turkey and Argentina alone are responsible for, call it $250 billion of face value of EM dollar debt. I mean, you know, what are the impact of all these elections? And, you know, can, you know, the market stomach what's coming through in 2023? Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point there. The, the, the vulnerability of, of, of global markets to, to the dollar in particular is, of course, a, a key factor here. And, you know, back in March 2020, when we saw the, the dollar rally very sharply, to my mind, it, it was really obviously the, the switch in um, stance from, from the Fed, but also the uh, the provision of, of, of um, Fed swap lines that was really critical here. And yes. I think going forward, we're going to see that being very highly politicized. Are you a U.S. ally or are you moving towards the, the other axis? And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that we are seeing... Um, you know, I, I hate the term deglobalization. I, I don't agree with that at all. But it's it's a reglobalization. It's a, more in the way of, of friendshoring. Greater allies will have more trade with each other, and I do think that that will also play out in, in the financial world. And you know, that's one of the the big powers that the U.S. has, right? The the offshore U.S. dollar is still the lifeblood of of trade, and it's still the lifeblood of uh, of global financial markets. And you know, I, I always sort of joke when people talk about, well, would China create a, a new system? Well, you know. 
Yes, China has bought some oil off of Russia and it's uh, it's paid for it in renminbi. But what do they use as the reference price? They use the dollar price and then they take a discount to it and then they convert it back. So I still think the dollar is so deeply entrenched on the global scale that the US will continue to, to yield that uh, wield that hammer. Um, and that will be absolutely critical in terms of how individual com- uh, countries are able to deal with this. You know, this is such a great point you're making here. I mean, how the global supply chain is, it, it, how it's shifting, right? I mean, and we're not talking about the death of globalization or even just taking a few years off. It's just the dynamic nature of it all and how it's changing. And so, you know, exactly. let's, let's talk about that. You know, I mean, are we thinking that the world, let's look forward five years, let's try to look forward. Is it going to be, you know, countries having to decide between, you know, the US and China? Is it going to be that much of a sort of you know, binary outcome for many of these economies. I'm talking those in Southeast Asia that, you know, have historically been U.S., you know, allies or and 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 abroad into Latin America, as you rightly point out, the Chile's of the world. I mean, the Middle East, right? I mean, look at what's going on with the KSA and, the, you know, China is Saudi Arabia's biggest client now, right? So, you know, the fact that, you know, they're still denominating oil in dollars, is that something that is subject to any risk? In the foreseeable future, something that we can, I mean, I, you, I, and, and it's a loaded question, I know, so feel free to skirt over it. But, you know, I've been <laughs> hearing this for the better part of 30 years, Christian. And, you know, for me, you know, it's just been, it's 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 kind of falls on deaf ears now. But, you know, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, like where this ends. Yeah, I mean, look, back in, what was it, about 2015, um, you know, one of my main key points in my presentation was that the fact that the, the world is changing. And uh, although this is obviously a, a gross simplification of an incredibly complex topic, it, it's uh, a world where we're moving towards pick a side. Um, and I do think that that divergence is, is going to uh, uh, going to continue. Um, I do think it will become more heated. I think tensions between the US and China are, are only going in one direction. Yes, we get the occasional positive headline, but they are fundamentally at loggerheads. And I don't think that's controversial. You know, the China has been very clear that it wants to ascend and become the one, world's number one superpower. The US is currently the world's number one superpower. Therefore, they're going to be butting heads. Yeah. Um, and that will play out on the global scale. And, you know, as you alluded to, China has been uh, uh, reaching out and making allies. And and uh, some of that will, will go against the, the US's goals and, and we'll see increased tensions. And you can definitely envisage some scenarios where the US essentially turns up at your door and says, right, who are you with? You need to make a decision now. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not forecasting this will happen, but, you know, there's the potential that the U.S. can use its Navy. It can blockade uh, countries and stop them sending things to China. Now, I'm not saying we, we, we get to that no, point, yeah, but right. certainly not off the cards. And, and and we need to be aware that whenever you're talking about trade, trade and military have gone hand in hand since the, the beginning of time. So um, although, you know, I certainly don't want to sound uh, uh, too bombastic here, but it, it is a question of uh, a divergent world going forward. Well, I, I mean, now let's take it to the next level, right? We're talking about trade, which is, you know, obviously, you know, I mean, whatever. Let's talk about investment. You know, talk to me about what you're seeing from clients now. Do you see clients taking sort of a similar tact in the way they want their money invested, saying perhaps, you know, I don't want to be buying CGBs. I don't want to be buying China-like assets because I just don't believe in their economy. I don't believe in some of the things they've been doing, or nor do I, you know, agree with, you know, being a maybe dollar-based investor, what that means for my own, you know, my my own portfolio. You know, I'm just curious, you know, do you see this sort of spilling into the decision tree of investors? You know, do you see that changing at all in the coming years? 
I think it already has, uh, but it really depends on who you speak to. There's a huge wide range of, of views out there. You know, sure. I, I speak to plenty of people that stick with the logic that it's uh, a country of uh, well over a billion people and it's absolutely critical and, and you have to be there. There's no choice. And then I speak to some investors that just aren't comfortable with the uh, the left tail risk of essentially uh, potentially having your, your assets seized off you at, at any minute. So the range of views, I think, is incredibly wide, which just highlights the level of uncertainty out there. And yeah. you know, geopolitics, by definition, is just incredibly complicated. Um, and I think that that makes decisions very difficult indeed and means that you have a, a wide range of views across the market. Christian, I can't thank you enough for coming on in, sharing your views with us here today. And thank you to our audience of ever-enduring emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Christian, you're the man. Thank you all. Thank you. Keep well, stay safe, and happy holidays. Thank you so much, Damon. Happy holidays, everyone. Mm -hmm.